Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. Welcome to episode 21 of Middle Brown Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gade. Have you ever wanted to crawl under a Japanese office lady's desk and enjoy the erotic aroma of her tights? With the <laughs> OL Office Lady Stocking Smell Spray by Tama Toys, you can get as close to this dream as possible without traveling several thousand miles and getting into trouble with the police. What the- f- The fragrance of this spray imitates the scent of a hard-working woman in a sexually stifled Japanese office. So Use nylon this spray and sweat. with your favorite adult toys, tights, and clothings, other cosplay costumes, or even a partner to fulfill your ultimate fantasies. That is $15, Derek. <laughs> that is 15 US dollars. How big is the spray bottle? How many ounces um, am I getting? It is uh, 0.3 fluid ounces, 10 milliliters. First of all, what a ripoff. Second of all, what? Where the hell? Where the hell did you find this? Wait, this is uh, this is nylon sweat spray. Uh, apparently, they, they have a lot. Of, they, uh, they have a lot of these. Uh, if I'm, hold on, let me open the smell fetish category in this website. Um, you also have th- things like obviously fresh schoolgirl panties scent spray, uh, uh, schoolgirl armpit smell spray, beautiful girl armpit sweat sweat smell spray. I don't know how it's different from the schoolgirl one, but apparently it must be after bath girl smell spray. Um, office lady high heels, which is different from the office lady stockings, I, I guess. I mean, legs don't um, smell the same as feet, Isabel. You know what? Hey, Derek, you're right there. <laughs> how, f- how foolish of me to, to be dismissive of this. Yeah, I need to get me some of that Japanese hoo-ha spray is what you're, is what you're telling me. <laughs> well, for that, you probably need the, uh, Gyaru panties crotch smell spray. Oh boy. Where um, do you find this shit? This is, uh, on Kenojo Toys. Um... I, I don't know if I want to say this. I'm, I can, I might cut this out. Um, I found it because I was looking for nose hooks, uh, like in Japanese face bondage, and they didn't have that on this website. But they did have a section that said smell fetish, fe- smell fetish. I was like, what you the just, fuck does that mean? You just and blew I through that, like you knew, like you thought I knew what that meant. <laughs> Dor- hold, on, I'll send you a pic real quick. It's it's not an, like it's not a, it's not like a dirty pic. Hold on. All right, and Slack, I guess. Yeah, hold on. Um, this is not the no. Here's the problem: is that okay? So as I'm looking for this pick, uh, the problem is there's two different kinds of nose hook. There's one I there's one that I have, um, which it goes like kind of over to the top of the head, and there's one that goes around the face. And uh, the around the face one, I have no idea how to find it. <laughs> um, because even like like tons of people use it. But, uh, like, I've never seen, like, a sex shop that has it. I've never seen a sex website that has it. Um, hold on. I'm pulling up a picture of Natalie Mars. Um, a, a, por- a pornographic actress or performer of some? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and this is, the portion, she- this is the portion of the podcast where Derek finds out about Isabel's <laughs> sex life in detail. Oh, f- God damn it. This is, you know what? I'm just sending you this picture. Um, so the one I'm looking for is the one that, like, is da- going down, not the one that goes up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Challenging material, right? A little bit. I mean, it's not so much the hook itself, but it's like the collar and the ears, and it's it's kind of the whole thing together. <laughs> it's a whole package. Now, now this um, now this image is on my computer now. <laughs> you didn't have to download it. You could just like looked it in Slack. I mean, I do have it looked at. In, this is this is a hell of a thing, man. You and I navigate the world in very different ways, don't we? <laughs> Okay, hey, you know what? That's fair. So I guess uh, it's time to start the podcast. I'm Isabel Arf. Hi, Dad. <laughs> uh, Isabel and Derek live their lives in two very different ways. Um, so, so when we're not I, talking, I just, it, I just spent like three hundred dollars on sex toys the other day. I earlier before we started the pod, I went and got uh, vegetables from a co-op, and I also bought <laughs> light bulbs. I've I've done those things too. I have a normal <laughs> life sometimes. The last thing that I splurged on was a pair of winter boots. 
Okay, you know what? Yeah, I, I can see where the difference is there between uh, what we choose to spend our money on. I'm trying to think. Like, what's like the wildest shit that I've bought on, on online? And I'm like, I'm I'm honestly drawing a blank. I bought a gimp mask from Poland. <laughs> if that's if that's not the title of the show, I'm going to be very surprised. Ah, uh, Derek. How do we start this podcast? Uh, movies, right? Movies. That's right. When we're not talking about uh, when we're not talking about sex gear, we're talking about motion pictures. The gimmick here is that we have this beautiful 256 seed single elimination bracket populated by the 250 best movies according to the Internet Movie Database, effective this past August, and three movies that we picked each to fill in the last couple of uh, couple of slots to give us uh, a bracket that we can actually use. Now, our podcast basically exists to pit each of these movies against one another and then eventually get to the point where we have crowned a champion, the best film of all time, asterisk. Now, since this is a two-person operation, there's bound to be disagreements. There's bound to be times where there's going to be a split vote, which is why we each have four vetoes in round one. Uh, I've used one so far, and Isabel has used two. And uh, our matchups today are as follows. We have 2001 A Space Odyssey versus Finding Nemo and The Intouchables against Blade Runner 2049. So, should we just get right into our first matchup? Yeah, these are some intense matchups, Derek. They are... Uh, well, one of the... Like, now, neither, neither of these are intense. One's a race towards the top, one's a race towards the bottom. I mean, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so our first matchup is um, the 90 seed. And I think if you've been listening for a while, presumptive favorite to win this whole thing. 2001 A Space Odyssey, released in 1968, written, well, directed by Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, uh, based on Clarke's short story, The Sentinel, and other short stories by Arthur C. Clarke. The the genesis of this movie is kind of weird because the movie and the screenplay were kind of being... like the script and the source were kind of being conceived of at the same time by both these men. In any case, uh, it stars uh, Keir Dulia and Gary Lockwood. This is not a movie where the actors are really whatever. The budget for 2001 A Space Odyssey was is cited on Wikipedia as being between $10.5 and $12 million in 1968 bucks, but ended up making a cool 146 mil and uh, also was nominated for four Academy Awards winning one for um for its visual effects stanley kubrick's only competitive oscar even though that oscar probably should have gone to douglas trumbull but whatever that is fucking wild (laughs) versus uh finding nemo released in 2003 directed by andrew stanton written by stanton bob peterson and david reynolds uh starring albert brooks ellen degeneres and willem dafoe uh, it cost $94 million to make and made $867.8 million motherfucking dollars. That's a lot of change. By a lot of nose hooks with that. Yes. <laughs> a, a, lot of, a lot of hoo-ha spray from Japan. <laughs> and I'm just going to pull up the Academy Awards here. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, original screenplay, animated feature, original score, and sound editing, winning for best animated feature. Um, all right, so I think we should just get right into this. Yeah, um, so... So, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I I was worried when we got to this one. Not because it's not a great film. It is one of my favorite films. I think it is one of both of our favorite films. Uh, there's it a is. reason it's, it's the odds-on favorites to win this whole bracket. It's still the high bar. But I was worried that it would be kind of like other great films we've talked about, where it's like, Everyone's kind of already talked about it. And what are we supposed to say that's extra? And what I would say that's extra is how does this movie still fucking cook so hard? Yeah, it, it fucking it, it owns bones. I was watching this and I was literally exclaiming out loud to, to Steph, who was not watching this movie, <laughs> who was just in the other room. was like, how the fuck was this movie made in 1968? How did right, the miniatures like- still look so fucking good? There's even, there's like some effects that I still don't know, like what, like there's some effects that I can look at and be like, okay, I get how they did that, even if it's very impressive. There's certain effects like 
there are certain effects where there's two people in frames at different that have different points of gravity that I don't know exactly how you did because they don't look like composite shots. If they do, they're like the most perfect composite shots you can imagine. I figure someone's got to be strapped down. Yeah, something like somehow. that. Because they don't have long enough hair that it would tilt. Um, it's like, no, it's it's still impressive. And one because th- I like I've seen this movie like a bunch of times already, and it's a, a, a fucking masterpiece, like technical and otherwise. It's I forget that the, there's no one who talks in this movie for the last forty five minutes. There's and not for a, like the first thirty minutes. Yeah, there's not for like half of this movie. No one talks. It's just a power of images, baby. So let like let's run down the stats of this film. It has okay. uh, some of the greatest mini- miniature work of all time. Mm-hmm. Some of the best special effects photography of all time. Uh, photography that is still fresh fifty years later. Mm-hmm. The best match cut of all time. Yes. The best use of program music of all time. 100%. 100%. One of the great enigmatic endings of all time. If if I may be, it will sound like like hyperbole, but I actually don't believe is. Very possibly the greatest sequence in film history. The Stargate sequence? Yes. Uh, The Stargate sequence. I I think I said on on Letterboxd that uh, if, like... If you had one chance to explain to someone what is special about movies, like what makes movies different from painting, from writing, from music, like what's the thing that makes movies worthwhile, I think you'd be really hard pressed to find a better thing to show them than the Stargate sequence. There's like 2001 A Space Odyssey is like, it's one of those movies like, like it's like Citizen Kane. It's like, uh, it's like a pocket film school. Yeah. Like obviously for like different things. Like the like these are like different movies, mm-hmm. but you can break like if you can break down two thousand and one, you can figure out how to make a movie. The thing like th- like my sort of uh like uh offhand sort of in the pocket answer to what separates movies from everything else. Like my snap answer is editing, and this and it ha- and obviously we mentioned the match cut at the beginning where and if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, it's at the beginning of the film where it's like. You've got the you've got like sort of ancient man who discovered that he could use tools, throws up the bone in triumph, and then the bone cuts to a spaceship. It's Which is, it's still perfect. so brilliant. It's just perfect. It's it's like we have now fast forwarded millennia, and we get it. This is our bone now. <laughs> this yeah, is our it's, tool. It's the ultimate way to be to be like hey. W- we're going to combine these two ideas and we don't need to say anything about them. We don't need to explicate to you why these things are, are related. The very fact that like we move from one image to the second one and there's a same sense of motion. There's a same sense of shape and object mm-hmm. you get. Okay. Here's this thing. Here's how it connects. I don't even, I can't even like explain exactly why it connects so perfectly. It just like, like your brain gets it. It's like immediately like, like that. It's almost as if Stanley Kubrick is good at making movies. Yeah, imagine that. Um, but yeah, the Stargate. Can you remember? Like, there was a point in my life where I was like, sort of down on parts of the Stargate sequence. And to that, I say, tough shit. It's a good thing that you rewatch this movie several <laughs> times because no, it's like unimpeachable. Mm-hmm. It's well, like especially like such simple choices as the fact that it's like when we start out and we're looking at um, the uh, the character's face. What's his name again? Do you remember? Uh, Dave Bowman, played by Keir Dooley. There we go. Uh, we're looking at his face. Uh, it's it's speeding up and it's like blurring. And then uh, the farther we get into the Stargate sequence, it just cuts to, at first, it cuts to still frames of his face instead of motion. And those are like interspliced, almost like uh, like the like the joke subliminal images in Fight Club. Like they're just like, boom. And then all of a sudden it's gone before you realize it just happened. And then we move from that to shots of his eye. That are just colored differently, and you see like his like retina like like contracting and expanding, and the way that it's done is so immaculate that I'm still amazed someone was able to do it and make it not. It should be hokey. It should be like okay, we get it. Uh, it's been like 20 minutes, and like we're still seeing this like quote unquote like psychedelic imagery. Whoa, bro! But it's 
it creates this spiritual experience. This like real out of body, like, oh, this is what space is. This is the majesty of space. This is everything beautiful in it and everything beautiful about being alive and everything magical and mystical and incredible about being alive in this like one sequence of the film that has no words, doesn't there there is technically a plot thing happening if you really want to break it down, but it's not about that. It's essentially just Images and music. It's an image movie. It's an mm-hmm. image. And, it's an image and music movie. Yeah. And those shots of Kirdulia, just those like those still images, they they're like fucking Goya paintings. Yeah. They're, like they're, kind of they're, twisted and weird. They're kind of terrifying, but like terrifying in the way that like a, a th- we're gonna be we're gonna be guilty of sounding hyperbolic talking about this movie, but they're terrifying in the way that, like God is terrifying. Sure. Like the the awesome power of the infinite or beyond the infinite, as as the title as, as sequences. Um, and like the one thing, I, like you were talking about effects that you're not quite sure how they figured out. I'm not quite sure how they got those, like those, like f- those, like floating mirrored, like, uh, like, like sort of, I, I guess they're like little space pods. There's like mm-hmm. eight of them at one point. I'm not sure how they did that because that looks like CGI and it's definitely not. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, and, Derek. It's an amazing movie. And yeah. And there's like the sequence where. He finally lands in a room, lives an entire life in like ten minutes, and it's he, like he, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this Borges thing where you watch yourself live and die. Could you imagine if this movie was just released right now? Oh, people like, would hate it. I think people would absolutely hate it. And, and like, and people hated it at the time too. To be fair, like it, it did it was pretty very well divisive for itself. At, it was it, very, divisive. it was very divisive at the time. Yeah, yeah. And just the fact that a major director got money to make this, of all things, when this, like, even, like, looking at modern film, this is wildly experimental. This was shot on a fucking soundstage in England. <laughs> Which is... This movie was built. That's nuts. I know. And <sighs> that's, that's in no small part why this movie still kind of lingers in the imagination. It's not just that it's this, this, this triumph of image and sound. It's that this movie was built from the ground up and like there's and i think that's one thing that struck me on this rewatch because i've seen it quite a few times like you have and a lot of people think of it as like a boring film that is like the criticism against it, like oh it's so boring nothing happens in it and it's also like <laughs> oh it's it's so abstract like not like i never know what's happening i never know what's going on but like the middle part of this movie is like this really tense thriller yeah the the techno thriller with hal 9000 yeah and also like one of the saddest evocations of like why maybe we shouldn't make artificial intelligence is hearing Hal sing his dying song and you know he has to die because otherwise this other person was going to die and you like understand why it's happening but you feel so so bad for Hal and you feel this intense personal connection to this computer because you just hear him fading away like like I mean like the comparison I thought of like when I was watching it is like someone with Alzheimer's or like listening to uh, someone with dementia or listening to uh the the work of the caretaker i don't know if you listen to him i'm not familiar um the his main main gimmick uh it's leyland kirby uh but his main gimmick as the caretaker is he takes old phonograph records of like ballroom music and slows them down loops them and like really uh accentuates the artifacting until it's kind of dissolving and destroyed uh to simulate the loss of memory and like how memory just fades away and this is Essentially doing the same thing, but, uh, like, 40, 50 years before anyone thought to do that. Uh, story time. The first time I saw this movie, I was 17 years old and it was for class. Um, and this, uh, the part where the first time Hal kills a guy, like, you get, like, the successive cuts towards Hal's eye, and mm-hmm. then it just a hard cut towards a body floating in space, like frantically fumbling to try to connect its like the the air valve back or like trying frantically to figure out a way to breathe in space mm-hmm. and like there were literal gasps in the room because like ah it's this movie from the 60s whether whatever but it's yeah that whole second act is just like a thriller and it's great and then the beginning of the film is essentially um the video game dead space <laughs> uh which i don't know if you've played but uh nope. So, stop me if you've heard this before, but the uh, premise of Dead Space is that um, a bunch of people in space dug something up that happens to make people around it go crazy. Yeah, that sounds familiar. 
Yeah, a little bit. And uh, I love the way that it it builds the intrigue and it builds like, well, what what happened on the moon? Like, especially like, if you haven't seen the film before, like, well, what did they find there? Like, what did they dig up? And I'm just also a sucker for the idea of like, we're digging up ancient technology or like, ancient things that we like never knew about and we just found mm-hmm. it and it looks like there's there was something before us yeah so like uh, i think the way i described it to someone was the the, the part of 2001 that kind of gets forgotten is that wait a minute there's someone laying breadcrumbs for us yeah yeah <laughs> Ugh, wow so this movie's pretty good is what we're saying yeah it's it's okay <laughs> oh man so yeah i think i think this movie has a very very legitimate shot at the crown yes because I don't think... But can it beat like, Finding Nemo? Um, like, not not to blow up the spot, but... I mean, I, I, let's talk about Finding Nemo. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, a movie- I almost feel like maybe we should have started with Finding Nemo, because it feels a little <laughs> anticlimactic coming afterwards. But let's, let's talk about Finding Nemo. I want to hear you talk about Finding Nemo, because you have a well-publicized history on this show as disliking the work of, of, of the studio known as Pixar. But you do like this movie. I do. I like this movie quite a bit. I think this is the one genuinely very good Pixar film. In their entire history of making movies, they've made one exactly like exactly one very good film. I think it is Finding Nemo. I think the rest of the stuff I could take or leave or is actively trash, like Up, which we'll fucking talk about at some point. But Finding I think we're have a fight about Up. <laughs> Finding Nemo. Um well Up is just an emotionally manipulative piece of shit. But Finding Nemo is an, emotion, is an emotionally manipulative, manipulative. Finding Nemo is an emotionally manipulative joyride. <laughs> and I mean, a lot a lot of movies are emotionally manipulative. Great directors do that. I think this movie's okay. I think it's fine. I, I think it was a fun hang. The reason I like it more than a lot of other Pixar movies is a because I think that like the performances that are put in are the best that Pixar has had. I think that Albert Brooks and Willem Dafoe especially. Just like absolutely nail their roles, and Willem Dafoe goes hard, way harder than he needed to. Like, there's he did not yeah. need to put that much effort in, but he nope. does, and it's wonderful. And even like, um, look, I'm not a fan of George W. Bush. Ellen DeGeneres <laughs> is, but even then, I have to give it up to her portrayal as Dory. I think like before Dory became annoying as fuck, which mm-hmm. she does in Finding Dory. I think there's just enough of her in this movie. Uh, and her emotional beats really land. Like I think that's actually I, almost the strongest emotional beats in the film. Uh, I, 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 I thought this. I, I thought Ellen was fine in this movie. I think I, I'm trying to think. What is like the, what, what's the Ellen DeGeneres performance? It's got to be this, right? Yeah, it's this. Uh, I, like as as groundbreaking, quote unquote, as her TV show was. Who the fuck ever watches Ellen anymore? The TV show. I mean. I mean, maybe we'll be the first podcast in history to reference the movie Mr. Right. Oh, God. It's, it, although that isn't my favorite, like, subgenre of, uh, not actually my favorite, but, like, my favorite thing that exists is this subgenre of romantic comedies where half of the, where, like, half of the leads are people who would later come out as gay, but are playing a straight relationship in the movie. Oh, it's called Mr. Wrong. Eh, close enough. Uh, who's the male lead in that? It's Bill Pullman. <laughs> oh God! Whoa, man, nineteen ninety six, huh? Um, but the other, just uh, um, do you know the other movie I'm talking about here? And this is mini subgenre of romantic comedies, uh, where a bunch of people who would later come out as gay play straight. One person, half of the lead. Uh, and it's not Mister Wrong. It's not Mister Wrong. I don't like around the same time. Um, a couple years later, two thousand one. So. Oh, you're, so you you know, and you're asking me. Yes, uh, two thousand one. Uh, I don't I don't know. It's a little movie called On the Line, On set in my hometown line. Chicago, uh, and uh, Lance Bass. <laughs> um, oh right, yeah, Lance Bass Whoa. falls in love with uh, Emmanuel Shriki Shriki. Don't know how to pronounce her actual name. She's Canadian. You should know her. She's an entourage. She's Sloan. She's also uh, in Don't Mess With the Zohan, for what that's worth. Yeah, she's from Montreal. I don't know who this person is. Well, um, the important part is that On the Line is terrible, and so is Mr. Wrong. But I, I can't say that I've seen... <laughs> I, it doesn't look good. I haven't seen it. I've seen should, my fair share of 90s detritus, but I haven't seen that. Um, but Finding Nemo, should we get back to that? That was a really... Yes, yes. 
Uh, not to say I that think- like most of our diversions aren't pointless, but I think that was extra pointless. <laughs> yeah, like. I mean, it's 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 fine. Oh, I, I didn't looks- get to my to the second reason. I think it's really good. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, second reason is I think uh, of every Pixar movie, this movie has their best animation and their most unique world, which is funny because it's just the ocean. But the fact that like there's so much variability in the ocean, it feels so rich and lived in. Like you have the under the deep sea sections, or you have the section with the sharks in like the the old submarine, or you have the section with the jellyfish, or uh, on the on the current, or in Sydney, or in the fish tank, there's so much variability. Whereas something like Monsters Inc. is should have more creativity, should have more varied locations, but it's just a bunch of like hackneyed jokes, like a bunch of monster puns, which are fine, but it doesn't have the same like kind of like rich visual look. Um, or like Wally doesn't have that. Like Cars doesn't have that. Toys. I was gonna say Toys R Us or Toys Inc. <laughs> Toy Story doesn't have that. Like, I don't think that any of their other films have that same kind of richness of image. I'm going to disagree and say that other movies do have richness of image, but I am going to agree and say that I think Finding Nemo does have the most. I think it does have the most sort of varied visual palette. And then I just think that, like, the emotional through line for both uh, Dory's character and for uh, Marlon's character and for Nemo, obviously, just works the best in any Pixar movie. Like, I think the the end of it, even if it does have that thing that I don't like in Pixar movies where everything's good and then there's one last, like, two-minute long conflict that doesn't need to be in the movie, <laughs> um, I think that the actual, like, the way that that movie ends is emotionally stirring to me. Okay. But the question is... Is it better than 2001 A Space Odyssey? Uh, I don't know, Derek. I mean, you know, I got to think about this for a little bit. Um, might use a veto. We'll see. Um, what are you thinking? <laughs> if you use a veto <laughs> on Finding Nemo against 2001 A Space Odyssey, I am going to burn this podcast to the ground. If I if I still had all my vetoes, I might do that just to fuck things up. But no, there's no way I'm doing that. Come on, 2001. It's It's... <sighs> Very possibly it's, the greatest film ever made. So it's it's definitely in the running. So I mean, no, I mean, like I said, Finding Nemo, fine film, but I mean, it's your favorite it's, film. It's, but I mean, it's no two thousand one. It's no two thousand one. It's I mean, very few films are two thousand and one or on its level. So uh, sorry, Nemo, you just like bad beats. You just happen to go up against <laughs> the presumptive winner of this whole fucking thing. It's going to be really fun when, like, not a single Pixar movie makes it to round two. Um, or did Monsters, Inc. win? No, it lost against City Lights. Haha, <laughs> fuck you, Monsters, Inc. And Wally lost to The Truman Show, so good riddance, Wally. I mean, I still really like that movie, but Truman Show Truman Show benefited from, like, Another like a fresh shut of eyes. Yeah. yeah. The 30, okay, next matchup. The 39th best film of all time, according to IMDb. Uh, Etouchable, aka The Untouchables, uh, directed by Olivier Nakache and Eric Tolinado, and written by them as well, starring François Cluzet and Omar Sy. Uh, ba 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 ba, budget $10.8 million, made, get this, $426 million worldwide. People the second highest grossing movie. French film of all time. That's, that's correct. Um, it didn't Second really, only to uh, Welcome to the Sticks. Yeah, which has, which has quite a quite a poster. It's not good. Um it didn't really get Oscar play, but it did do pretty well at well, it did okay at the César Awards, being nominated for eight César Awards, uh, with Omar C winning for Best Actor. I, anyway, against uh Blade Runner 2049. Uh, released in 2000 I should I should point out that um uh, Entouchable was released in 2011 so this is like a recent phenomenon versus the versus the 218 seed in the tournament Blade Runner 2049 released in 2017 uh directed by Denis Villeneuve screenplay by Hampton Fancher and Michael Green uh based on characters from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K Dick uh, cost uh, a, a lot of money, 150 to 185 million dollars, according to Wikipedia. Made 260.5 million dollars, and um, it wasn't. It received five nominations at the 90th Academy Awards, 
and it won for Best Visual Effects and Best Cinematography, finally netting Roger Deakins his fucking Oscar. <laughs> what a depressing thing to win for. I mean, I disagree because this movie looks sumptuous. But we'll get to that. We'll get let's to first it. talk let's first talk about uh, the entire I'm already exhausted by these two movies. <laughs> God. Uh the Untouchables. Uh, you know, maybe Derek. You know what I learned from the Untouchables? What's that is about? I learned that black people are people too. <laughs> they love. You know what they love? They they love to dance. They they love uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's right. Um, I mean, who among us? They're criminals. They are. Uh, they, they live. They they hit they on everyone slums. if they like it or not. Yes, they yes. live in a slum and have too many children. That's right. Estranged from their baby mamas. They're incredibly rude and uh, profane. They smoke That's weed right. all the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they're just people like us. But just, like, like worse. <laughs> this is like... This is like the most racist, anti-racist movie. I know I just said that about, like, some other movie. I don't even remember anymore. I don't remember what I say anymore. But, like, this movie, <laughs> holy fuck. Like, this movie... Like, let's put every anti-black stereotype in one film. <laughs> yeah... It's it's not great. This this feels it was released in 2011, but it might as well have been released in 1986. This this makes like Driving Miss Daisy look progressive. Yeah, this is like a buddy comedy where you have a paraplegic rich white guy <sighs> who um I guess I don't even fucking know. It's like he's like he he's looking for like a caretaker. And in comes Omar C, all belligerent and shit. It's like I yeah. need my I I need a signature so I can tell the welfare office that I'm looking for a job. And they become friends? Question mark? Yeah. It's, I was telling Isabel. You, you know what? Go made, ahead. What made me this the most uncomfortable in this film is at the end they have like uh, oh here's a little shot of the people this is based on, and. Uh, the shot of the people it's based on, at least in like in the movie uh, of the yep. Untouchables, they have the decency to let like Omar C like wear his like own clothes and like look like a regular person, and then they they cut to like the real people this is based on, and it is so obviously just like a uh, like master servant relationship. Not to put too fine a oh, point 100%. on it, but like the fact that he's still wearing like like a like a like a caretaker's uniform, and he looks like he's just fucking putting up with this asshole. It is, it is unintentionally destroying everything else the movie's trying to build. It's wonderful. Yeah. It is such a terrible choice. It's weird because this, like, this movie has like hijinks. Like, uh, like I'm 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 it a rich white guy, so I'm gonna teach. Yeah, it's, it's like I'm a rich white guy. I'm gonna teach you about modern art. Yeah, well, I'm a cool black guy, so we're gonna smoke a lot of weed and get these like sex workers. I'll get these 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 uh, these uh, sex workers to rub your ears seductively. Ugh, and these are the better parts of the movies you're talking about. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Because here, here's the thing: Omar C, incredibly charismatic performer, certainly. Like, th- like weaves gold out of bullshit in this movie. Like, I'm glad that that's the award that he, that actually they won that this movie won, uh, because he's the one part of this movie that I'm like, oh. I want to see this guy in more stuff. He's so charismatic. Yeah. He's so much fun to watch. He is putting 110% in material that deserves negative 20%. It is wild. Yes. It's – no, it it is a astonishingly regressive film. <laughs> it is like um, – I can't – it's like it's like this, this movie came out in 2011. Remember the part – And it was a huge hit. <laughs> remember the part where um, uh, the – the black caretaker pours hot scalding tea on the white paraplegic's legs to see if it hurts him, and then laughs when it doesn't. And is like, "Oh, look, this is wild! What the fuck was that? Like, what is this movie, Derek?" Um, a mistake is what it was. It was a very, a very successful mistake, mind. Um, and also, there's just things in the movie that happen that I'm not. I like. I don't get why they're happening. Like there's the part where um where there's the uh the end of the second act where they they break up as friends like uh like uh Omar goes his own way rich white dude I'm not bothering to learn his name um goes his own way is like hey you should you shouldn't 
be like my caretaker for the rest of your life. You should go do this other thing. You should be with your family. But yeah, like, his name is Philip. Why can't he like be with his family while being a caretaker? Like, why can't he like? There's no reason that these things can't be resolved completely, like sanely and easily without all this conflict. But the movie needs to have a conflict, so it has it invents this strange conflict that doesn't make any sense when you're watching it. Like as and like as far as like like sensitivity towards someone with like with like sort of large scale paralysis oh, in their body. <laughs> this movie is like two hairs above Million Dollar Baby. Oh boy! <laughs> like the dude, like the dude lives as opposed to uh, to Hillary Swank in that movie. That is Spoiler. true. And like um, you know, think you know, like. But it, it mostly seems that way because he's fucking loaded. <laughs> yeah, it's... And then, like, 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 the movie kind of opens on this weird note of, like, uh, like shaming people who get, like, government benefits. Yep. Which is, like, it's... Every single moment in this movie is ill-considered. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not great. It's like, oh, you like classical music, but I like disco. <laughs> or Or, like, old soul music. It's like... Come the fuck on! I mean, come on! Like it's it's like we're, it, we're gonna like, go to the opera, but guess what? The black person I'm with is gonna laugh at the opera because there's a, there's a man as a tree on stage, and he can't control his laughter because he's just. I mean, it treats him like he like he's like a child, like he can't control himself, like he just interjects with comments all the time. He doesn't like have a sense of when to say things and when not to say things. He doesn't like just not say things if he just like didn't say things occasionally and like later was like hey that was kind of weird or like hey that was really funny to me but like he just says everything he has no filter he literally acts like a child uh, so so um, speaking of other bad morally reprehensible movies let's talk about, about Blade that. Runner 2049 okay a movie so, that you think is better than the original Blade Runner <laughs> That is not true. I, mean, I shouldn't. I, mean, bes- I, sh- I shouldn't besmirch Derek like this. I'm sorry. That was that was unnecessarily mean of me. <laughs> like, like, you, like I like you think Blade Runner is a great film, but you like Blade Runner a lot more than I do. I like Blade Runner more than like Ridley Scott does. <laughs> I think. And like, here, like as I was saying, we were talking briefly off mic about this. Is like I do like Blade Runner forty uh, twenty forty nine. I think it's. Like as far as like, it it fits into a, a subgenre I like to call maximalist pulp. It falls in this subgenre of movies that have now th- like w- like we were talking about Three Billboards last episode, and that was a movie with portent, but also tried to mix it up a little bit with being irreverent. This movie is all portent. It's all seventies style portent. Which, when married to the genre trappings inherent in this particular story, I'm kind of powerless against. I, 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 I really like that kind of stuff. I, mean, I think that's why I found it even more insulting. Is that like there's all these these things I should like. Like I, I like you. I love the like this widescreen cinematography. This incredibly like taking itself deathly seriously sci-fi. Uh, like this. Uh, beautiful cinematography. That's the one thing I will say about a positive is that Deacons lends the fuck out of this thing. Um, I am sad this is a movie he won for. There's so many other movies he should have won for, but I cannot deny either that movie it's, it's he wonderful. was nominated for in 2007. That is true yes. because he was nominated twice that year. Yep, um, and one of them was uh, Jesse James was uh, Assassination of Jesse James. Yes, which what was the other one? Um, was there will be blood? Yes, <laughs> those God, are those are th- both incredible movies, Derek. What a stacked year that was. Um, but that's even more why I find Blade Runner 2049 like kind of insulting, is that it, it takes these trappings and these signifiers. And it's, the, the way I described it on uh, my letterbox review is it's like a 15-year-old covering Hallelujah on America's Got Talent versus the original's Leonard Cohen. It's, it's not even like Jeff Buckley. It's like, it's, it's that bad. Like, I think, like, it, it has, I, it has, it has the song. But it has none of the emotion. It is none of like it doesn't know how to deploy what it's trying to do. It's completely inert and empty. I disagree. <laughs> okay. I 
I found that like I said this to you off mic, and I'll say it again. The one thing that ham that that like sort of uh, hamstrings this movie is the flat is the fact that it has Blade Runner in the title. If this was called Robo Hunt twenty forty nine, I think I would have no problem calling this one of the one of the best movies of twenty seventeen. I think if it would just be better. Strip, I think it would be better. I I'll agree with that. If you strip all the Blade Runner from it, but this is what we have. And what we have, I think, is this almost like this kind of neon damaged vaporwave inversion of the first one. It's not, it's, it's using the same sort of materials, but it's not doing the same thing, which is fine. To me, like, the, like, the, like as much as I love Blade Runner, it's not a sacred text, right? So the fact that you had that now in this kind of universe, we have this sort of almost like piss colored portent. Denis Villeneuve loves the color of piss. Because <laughs> he uses the same shade of yellow in Enemy. Which is a better film in every way. Oh, absolutely not. We disagree on this. <laughs> I think Enemy is quite, quite good, whereas I think this film is, like I said, reprehensible. But, you know, continue. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, so so we have this kind of like, this this saturated... Uh, it's, it's, based, it's, it's just a detective story. It's just a detective story. And it... I, I think it plays in... It plays like a parallel to the original. It doesn't do the same things or talk about the same things, even though they kind of play in the same sandbox. But as kind of like this maximalist pulp art object, where at the core, it's a detective story. And you have these little sort of sprinklings of like, like all capital letters, what it means to be human or whatever. Emphasis on or whatever. Because I don't really, that's not really the part of the movie that interests me. The part of the movie that interests me is like, like, is like the world and the, the mystery and the way it looks. I like the way that the image, I like that the way, like the sort of, the, the fact that the image is so processed and so deliberate conveys, it does a lot of the heavy lifting is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Like this is a rote this is like a rote police story, but I liked I, I like how Villeneuve and the screenwriters remixed, repurposed, rearranged uh the constituent parts of that old film to something that might as well have not had the Blade Runner name on it. I do like I do like what they did, but I do wish that it wasn't necessarily a Blade Runner story. Like like if you take out just Harrison Ford and the likeness of Sean Young. And you put in two other actors. Likeness, quote unquote, that is like the worst CGI. <laughs> it's fine. Doesn't fucking look anything I mean, like her, but sorry. It, I mean, it looks enough like her that when she came on screen, I said, ah, that's where the likeness of Sean Young went. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think our friend, our friend, your former uh, podcasting partner, Ross Burks, said that I would like this movie because uh, it reminded him of a movie I like very much, Panos Gizmatos' Beyond the Black Rainbow. And it's mostly because of this kind of like gauzy application of almost outmoded genre looks to this very elemental story. This is like a, a, a neo-noir detective story, whereas um, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow is basically, it's basically a slasher. It's not quite a slasher, but it's basically a slasher. And that's kind of like my reasoning for why I think this is good. Okay. So, um, I, I want to focus in on one thing you said that I disagree with. And I think that that is okay. that you um, originally started by calling this an inversion of the original film. But then you said that it's, uh, it plays in the same sandbox but isn't doing the same thing. And that's where I disagree. I think it is trying to do the same thing, but it is trying to invert everything that was in the original. For example, um, you look at the... In the original film, the really thing, thing that was fascinating about it, and thing that makes it so emotionally affecting, to me at least, is the fact that our human characters are unhuman, and our inhuman characters, like the replicants, are the most human. They're the most alive characters, and they're the ones you 
they're essentially the protagonist. Like Roy Batty is, is a is the hero of the film, even if Deckard is the protagonist, quote unquote. He is not the good guy in the film. He is not the hero. And um it's this what it was trying to do, at least in my view, is to use these replicants, these these beings that don't have all the baggage that humans do, to attempt to say the best things about being alive. Whereas this film from the the virgin birth that it fucking employs as a plot point um to the way that all of the replicants are seemingly focused on being as human-like as possible it makes it so that what was kind of a beautiful difference in the first film is flattened out into this desire for desire to be like all the other humans this desire to um fold oneself into an awful existence um, you take something like the, the theme of memory, whereas in the first film is this very lonely idea. Like the, like when Roy Batty dies, the, the reason that's, um, that is so beautiful to me, again, I'm like, this is, we're going to talk about this a lot again when we talk about Blade Runner, but is that when he dies, what he was will be gone forever. And that's what his monologue is about. It's like, hey, all these things that like, all these moments we lost in time, like tears and rain. And it's because all these moments that he has inside of him can't be transferred out. Whereas in this movie, you can. You can just take some. You can just take someone else's memories and put them in someone else. So like, there's no threat of ever losing that. There's no threat to. There's there's no tragic beauty to people's lives anymore. They can just be transferred to other people. Um, and then moving something like uh, the creator uh, in the original film is Tyrell, which is like this aloof man out of touch with his creation, like very much like a god figure, whereas. Jared Leto is doing this really weird fucking like new age kind of thing that I never got on. Kind of like the dude in Mandy a little bit. A little bit. And I never really got on board with what he was trying to do. And he is. He was a character that seemed to be made of images stolen from other things that didn't know what they were doing. Um, And then um, just stuff like. I think that in the original film, the relationship between Rachel and Deckard is very complicated and in many ways abusive and problematic. Uh, and I think is more valuable for being that, where it's essentially two people who don't know how to be people bouncing off of each other and inflicting cruelty on each other and trying to be less cruel. Whereas this film reframes it as like this beautiful love affair. And again, a lot of the, like, I, th- I think that the reason this is important and I can't just like, I can't just, separate this as its own movie is it so clearly echoing those things it's so clearly trying to make comment on those things that it's impossible for me to divorce the way that it flat out fails in those and the way that i think it is like like um like genuinely like like wrong in the way that uh it deals with these questions um and the anthropocentrism of it uh and then there's obviously like just puns up with like the plot that I think is like ridiculous and deeply silly and that doesn't work for me. I also think that I usually love Gosling and I think Gosling is bad in this. I think uh his his shtick doesn't work for what the film's trying to do and it ends up feeling like a parody. I think I think Gosling's fine in it. It's not like a, a revelatory performance, but I think it I think he's okay. Um if I may address yeah. the flattening of humanity, I think in itself I find to be an interesting theme, even if it's different from the original's theme of sort of uh, uh, the uniqueness of a person, or um, or the or a machine being human, or uh, uh, whatever it to, may be. To clarify, real quick, I'm not against the idea of that as a theme, or like um, playing with the idea of like what does humanity look like when we flatten this thing out, like especially in a cyberpunk world. That's an interesting question to deal with. Like, how what do people look like now? Is it like this kind of like flat level thing? Or is it something different? But I think that the problem I have is that this movie deifies that flatness. I don't know if I agree. I don't know if this. I don't know if I agree with that. As I feel, I think a lot of the. I think the. I think there is a. I think there is a flatness to a lot of the characters, and I don't think that's a bug. I think that fits in snugly with what the movie is trying to do in part. I, I think like like the reason that I would push back against that and i would push back i would say that this flatness is the ideal is that when you meet like the uh the replicant kind of resistance movement Mm -hmm. they all they're all looking for and attempting to they're attempting to put humanity back on a pedestal 
Because like, instead of being like, hey, we are unique creatures who have our own values, who have our own existences. They're like, hey, all of us had these memories implanted into us from this one person. And now it is our goal to essentially like, like, like make almost the messianic figure out of this person that we all thought we were. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. And I think that that just, um, it makes a, it's heavily anthropocentric, as I said previously, but also just makes their own personhood, their own unique personhood feel less relevant or worthwhile. Um, in service of this ultimate ideal that uh, like, like replicants should be viewed as people because they are, or should, should be viewed as beings worthy of respect and care because they are beings worthy of respect and care. Not because you can have replicant babies. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But I also think that's an interesting wrinkle in the film, but like a wrinkle to what ends is essentially what I'm saying. Uh, not that every wrinkle has to have an end. I, I should I should clarify, but I mean, I haven't I haven't that thought that far ahead. <laughs> I I only had one other thing. Yeah, really. Uh, the the sort of uh, the the impersistence of memory, I think, ties into this film as sort of like the fragility of tech. There's this whole sort of through line about uh, the blackout and the only records that sur- that survive are on paper and all these old records that we have are imperfect. The records can be f- uh, can be fudged. I think that was an interesting through line as well. That kind of uh, that kind of echoes that sentiment of like the the uh, the imp- the uh, the sort of uh, amorphous nature of memory. I think that like it ends up coming down on the side of uh, like a, a liberal universalism. Which is like by the end of the film, it's like, oh, if we just make tech better, then we cannot have these issues. <laughs> like, like I agree that like in the abstract, I think that that's an interesting way to, to look, like the blackout specifically is an interesting way to address that situation. Um, and is I actually think one of the better plot points. I think it's one of the ones that works the best. But I feel like it ends up coming down on the side of, oh, we just need to be better. We just need to move farther. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And we can... We can create a future that is not lonely, is essentially what it seems to be saying. And I think that that is um, a dangerous lie and a dangerous ideology to put forth. Because I think like, as soon as you lose a certain essential loneliness that uh, individual memory creates, I think you lose what is valuable about being a self and not being a person. See, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the film, if not explicitly, my sort of like my 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 sense, my read on it is that we could strive for this perfect tech, like you say, but it's like bound to fail. Hmm. I guess I just didn't get that read from it. I feel like by the end of it, I felt like there was like there was a, there was a, a hope in tech. Uh, I I I I didn't get that. I mean, we are two different people. Yeah, <laughs> and we do we we do read things in different ways. So now we've come to the which movie moves on portion of this uh, of this exercise. Yes. Now I have a clear winner on this, and it's the Untouchables. You're, you're using your veto to move forward. No, I think I think I think Blade Runner twenty nine moves on. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that here is what I'll say: is I think that Blade Runner twenty forty nine makes me angrier, but I think it's also a far more fascinating film. I think it's a film that I like looking at a great deal more. It is pretty at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a film that's like just from like listening to this discussion we've had that is actually like really inter- I think not to toot our own horns, but I think we've had an interesting discussion about what this movie's trying to say about humanity and technology. Sure. Whereas, like, what the what are if we if we watch <laughs> the Untouchables again, we're just gonna say the same shit. As much as I I get angry watching Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a movie that I'm willing to watch again. Whereas I don't think sure. I'm willing to rewatch the Untouchables. I think that is a movie that is. Best left to the dustbin of history. I mean, not to metagame too much, but whoever wins here, 2001 is going to like elbow drop them into the next dimension. Certainly, but I also think that like 2001 versus Blade Runner 249 is a really interesting parallel. That's a really comparison. interesting discussion. Yeah, so That's a really interesting discussion. So uh, congratulations, Blade Runner 2049. You are moving on. <laughs> the worst movie um, that has ever moved on in this bracket. <laughs> in my opinion. See, I don't, see, I don't think that's true. <laughs> So that's it. We've done our two matchups for today. We have. Um, so the next round, in the next round, we are going to have uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey versus Blade Runner 2049: The Battle of the Numbers. Who wins? <laughs> is it the one with the bigger number? Yeah, one is bigger. Maybe. So I mean, hey, 
So next time, next episode, yes. our two matchups are as follows. Snatch versus Wild Strawberries. And the usual suspects versus La Ain. Whoa, what a what a grab bag. Man, that is that's a weird group of movies. Yeah. Uh, I saw th- I, I saw The Lighthouse recently. And uh, film. I, great movie. Um and one of the trailers I played beforehand was the trailer for the new Guy Ritchie movie. And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't interested in seeing it. <laughs> There's a new Guy Ritchie movie? Yeah, it, what the fuck is it called? Um it's it's He's like operating in like uh, uh, lock, stock, or or snatch mode. The gentleman. What's it? Oh yeah, the that gentleman. actually looked kind of rad. Yeah, I agree. It's I listen. I know it's uncool to like Guy Ritchie, but a couple of those movies are very, very important to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's got Charlie Human in it. It's got Charlie Human. It's got Maddie Mac. It's got a lot of good people. I really need to see um, Revolver by Guy Ritchie. I've heard that movie's wild. It's also got, it's uh, also got like like a weird like Kabbalah connection. Kabbalah. Yeah, like like it like it has like like Kabbalistic like imagery and symbols in it. Interesting. Yeah, because this was when he was married to uh, Madonna. But Ma- that's right, he was married to Madonna for a hot second, yeah. wasn't he? And they made uh, uh, swept away, right? Yeah. Uh, that is correct. What a film! What a film! Is that any good? Probably not. No, I haven't seen it. Why would I? Why would I? <laughs> I mean, you're a Madonna stan, aren't you? Uh, I if we're talking about like 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 1980s Madonna to like 2000, yes. All right, so this is 2002. As soon so. as um, American Life came out, that album that was yeah. that was the album that made me go, oh, Madonna sucks. That was now. the death knell. It's also when she she, so right she decided in- to get like hella political, and it was unbearable. So right up until Ray of Light, I guess. Uh, and music. I think music's pretty good. But I think Ray of Light is probably is, like her second or third best album. So, When's music? That's like 2000, yeah. right? You know, uh, Ray of Light is delightful. Yeah, Septem- September 18th, 2000. That song was fucking everywhere, wasn't it? It's great, great song. Yeah. Madonna fun. makes good music. That is my opinion. I, th- I yeah, think that the there's... the Immaculate Collection is, like, as far as greatest hits album go, it might be the greatest, greatest hits album. Would you go so far as to call it Immaculate? Immaculate? I might. <laughs> I might, Derek. All right. So uh, so this has been Madonna Talk. Uh, do we have any uh, any uh, sort of outstanding FU or uh, or uh, or uh, business otherwise? Um, not as far as I know. That's all the uh, uh, emails we got. If you want to send us more emails about uh, vegan recipes, um, what was our things? Vegan recipes, Indian um, film, uh, Indian film, uh, the Picts was it or no? It was the Roman uh, Roman conquest of yes. Indian. I feel like there's one other thing too. Um, oh, if if you got links to those nose hooks I was talking about, like send them my way because <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking high and low and I literally cannot find them. Uh, Kira Kurosawa's high and low. <laughs> I just I just said the name of a movie. That's all I did. Um, so yeah, if you want to get in touch with us for more of whatever the fuck comedy. this is, that's right. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us for more of whatever the fuck this is, uh, you can get a hold of us at uh, what's our email? It's middlebrownmadness at gmail Sure is. You can also get a hold of us on Twitter uh, at middlebrowpod, uh, or visit uh, our website. At uh, noisespace.xyz slash middlebrow hyphen madness. We are part of the Noise Space Podcast Network run by our friend Matt. There's lots of other shows there. Um, uh, you can get a hold of us individually on Twitter. You can get a hold of me at Derek underscore G. You can get a hold of Isabel at Space Jam Fan. We're both on Letterboxd. I'm at Derek underscore G, and Isabel is at The Traps Jaw. And if you want to throw us a, a little five star rating or however many stars, whatever you think this show is worth, uh, you can do so on Apple Podcasts. Um, it does help us out because we are tiny. Um, ready to wrap it up? Yep. Oh, I I just say my stuff, don't I? Uh, that's right. Hey everyone, I've been Isabel Arf, and I've been Derek Godding. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night, everybody. Good night. Uh, so the gimmick of this podcast, uh, we. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. It's 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 so it's not funny. It's just you know it's just kind of uh, you ever think about your life. I mean, I think about just... my.
I think of my I like we've had this conversation before, and you you have told you you have told me that uh you find your life to be sort of normal and dull. And when I, an actual normal and dull person, hear that, I all I do is shake my head and go, No, my child, you have no fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Like, take a real good look at the life you lead. Then take a look at the life I lead. I, I did have that moment the other day. I think I posted it on Twitter, but it's, it's a good enough joke that I'll post it here. <laughs> I'll post it in talking, otherwise known as sentences. Um, but uh, we're like, I was just like thinking, I was like, I have a really boring life. And then I was like, well, when I think about it, I've been to enough sex parties that some of them have I would consider ho-hum. <laughs> and I think when you uh, have have memories of ho-hum sex parties, I think your life is more interesting than maybe you think of it as. Yeah, I, I'm still at the point in my life where uh, the sex party in the abstract is like this decadent impossibility. So <laughs> Don't worry, so, they're as routine as any other part of life. Mm. Turns out everything's disappointing. Congratulations. Good lord. What a... We are... We, like, I, I think our... Like... I was worried that it was going to take us a while to get warmed up to get back into the swing of things. We are on fire this episode. I can't put. Uh, I guess I, you know, I, I will take a look in the edit, but I feel like a lot of this is getting kept in that I don't necessarily want to be kept in. But you know, it's fine. I already I mean, posted you, it on Twitter. You have final edit. That's your. I call. do have final edit, and I can just tell my dad not to listen to this one. <laughs>